Good morning, everybody. I'm Associate Pastor Matt Sprinkle, and I'm going to continue our series that we're in called Life Hacks. Now, a life hack is a strategy or a technique that you use to make things easier, more efficient, more successful. We're always looking for faster, cheaper, better ways of doing things. And so there's some fun life hacks that you can find online. Here are a couple of them. Let's say you have some bananas and you want to keep them from going bad. Wrap the top in plastic. It keeps them fresher longer. Another one is if you like iced coffee in the morning or afternoon or night, you can take a pot of coffee, fill ice cube trays with it, freeze them, and anytime you want, you can have iced coffee. The third one is something that we looked at last week. Pastor Thad talked about it, but I thought it was so cool and so helpful. I wanted to share it again. You have a microwave, but there's too much food to microwave at the same time. How do you fit it all in? Put the food on a coffee cup. Now you have a two-tiered system. That's going to help me when I microwave food for my three boys. So these are life hacks, right? They're not exactly life-changing, but they are ways for us to shortcut or, or problem-solve or make things better. We're all looking for better ways of living. We're all looking for secrets to success. We all want to have a successful life. Everyone wants a successful life. And it's interesting, if you talk to people, if you look back in history, if you you know just survey uh, the human race, we have a very similar definition of success, believe it or not. For example, everybody wants financial security. Nobody wants to be poor. Everybody wants to be well-off financially. What they mean by well-off is different, but they all are looking for financial security. Aren't you? Something else we all want is honor, not shame. We walk in a room, we want people to wave at us, not whisper about us. We want people to respect us. We want a good reputation. We avoid shame at all costs in our culture, and all cultures do. Something else that defines a successful life for most people is a a long life. We don't want to die. We want to live a long, happy, healthy life. Some people do die young, but it's a tragedy. It's an exception, not the rule. We want safety and security. We want wisdom and knowledge. And we want contentment, happiness, and a deep sense of satisfaction, don't you? Well, it turns out everybody wants those things. Now, the specifics look different. What it means to be financially secure for you, what a long life is for you, may be different than it is for me, but we both want those things. And because we're all chasing after essentially the same kind of successful, happy, prosperous life, is it any wonder that God has spoken so much about giving us that kind of life? God loves us and he wants to prosper us. He wants us to have success. But that success, the life that we want, that is contingent. God has promised to give it to those who choose the attitudes of success. And that's what we're looking at in this series. There are certain attitudes that we can adopt as Christians that God blesses. And if we choose these attitudes over and over again, they characterize our life. Over time, our life becomes more and more successful by any standard. And this is the true life hack. So last week, we were looking at two of these attitudes, last week and the week before. The fear of the Lord, which means to obey God, take him seriously, listen to his words, do what he says. Like a good child obeys their father, we fear and obey our Heavenly Father. And then trust the Lord. That is, when the Lord says he'll take care of us, when the Lord tells us to do something, and we feel vulnerable as we wait for him to take care of us, we know he will. We trust him. We trust him with the outcome. This week we're looking at the third, which is humility. So let's get started. Humility uh, in the Bible has a mascot. That's right. The mascot for humility is the lizard. In Proverbs 30, 28, it says a lizard can be caught with hand, yet it's found in the king's palace. How does a little lizard get in the king's palace? 
a place of incredible power and stature, when almost no human beings can get into the king's palace. Is it because he's fast? No. Is it because he's big? No. It's because a lizard is low profile. A lizard has a low profile. And that's what we have to have if we're going to be humble. If we choose humility, if we choose a low profile, there's all sorts of blessings and promises made to us in the scriptures. For example, Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility in the fear of the Lord is riches, honors, and life. Riches, honor, and life. I want riches. I want honor. I want life. Humility and the fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 5.6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he will exalt you. Do you want to be exalted? Do you want to be lifted up in the right way at the right time and stable in that position? Humble yourself before the Lord. There are promises after promises to those who humble themselves in the scriptures. And that's why today we're going to focus on humility. Now, I know many of you are familiar with the attitudes of success. You've heard them before, perhaps. And so today I really want to zoom in on some applications for humility. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to look at the real life hack, humility, and how it is that we can choose humility in very, very practical but difficult ways so that over the course of our life, we can experience the success that God promises. So let's choose a real life hack, and that is humility. This is the shortcut to success with the fear of the Lord and the trust in the Lord, with teachability and patience. These five attitudes of success are the things that God is asking us to choose so that we can experience the blessing that God wants to give us. So I know many of you have heard the attitudes of success. If you've been at Church in the Valley for a while, you've probably uh, heard this teaching before. So what I'd like to do is zoom in on two applications of how we can put humility into practice in our lives. The first one is humility before the Lord. Now, Proverbs 3.34 says, God mocks proud mockers. So you don't want to be a mocker, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, grace is the resources, the help that God gives in all the ways that God gives help. It's all grace, all the good that God pours out, that God does, that God holds back inside of us, around us, in front of us, behind us. All that God is doing for our good is his grace. And that opens up for us when we choose humility. It's like a solar panel. Have you ever driven to Las Vegas? You're on the 15 freeway. There's these big open desert vistas. And then you see this massive solar panel array stretching across several square miles of the desert. Now, those solar panels are soaking up the energy of the sun. When the sun rises, they face the sun. As it goes to its zenith, they are straight up. When it goes to where it's setting, they go towards the sun when it moves. So they're moving with the sun and they're soaking in all of the sun's energy. That's what humility does for us. Humility is like facing the Lord and receiving the grace that he gives. So we want to choose humility before the Lord. How do you do that? How do you humble yourself before the Lord? Here are four specifics for you to evaluate yourself against. One, confessing your sins in terms that God uses, not terms that you use. One of the common themes that I've noticed today in the church, and again, I didn't grow up a Christian. I didn't grow up going to um, your typical Protestant church. Okay, I didn't commit my life to Christ until I was 19. But even in just the 20 years that I've been a believer, one of the things I've noticed is that Christians are beginning to redefine terms 
redefine Christian terms, redefine terms in the Bible to make them less offensive, less uh, weighty, less heavy. And really what we're doing is is we're, we're changing the language of the scriptures to soften it, to fit ourselves. That's what we're doing. And so we, for example, we may not want to say, please forgive me. We just want to say, sorry. It's the same thing. It's actually not the same thing. God says it's not the same thing. God's very specific as you read across the scriptures what sin is and what forgiveness means. And when you confess, those things are not vague. They're rather precise. And when I say, yeah, it's the same thing, what I'm really saying is I want to reinterpret the Bible to fit what I'm comfortable with. Now, think about ways you may be doing that. Think about things the Bible says that you're not really comfortable with. So you go online and try to find somebody who interprets it more like what you want. I've done that before. I'm sure you have too. That's not humility. That's mockery. And if I keep doing that, and if you keep doing that, it's going to bring pain and not success. A second way that you can choose to submit or humble yourself before the Lord is I start my day every day receiving the words of the king. I I start the day going into his court, walking down those big hallways, and there's King Jesus sitting on his throne, and he's speaking, and he's teaching, and he's directing, and he's revealing himself and his will, and I'm listening and trying to understand and trying to think about how I can apply it, and now you're thinking, what are you talking about, Matt? What I'm talking about is how I imagine, and this is just me, okay? This isn't the Bible necessarily. This is just me, right? I imagine when I spend time with God in the morning that I'm sitting before the Lord on a throne. I'm in a big hall, some hall that I saw in a movie when I was a kid about, you know, kings and queens. I just imagine in my mind. And as I read the scriptures, I'm imagining that he's speaking. He's telling me this story. If it's Deuteronomy, like I'm reading now, right? He's telling me the story, right? Or he's dictating it to Moses, who's writing it down to tell it to the children of Israel, so I'm, I'm imagining that I'm getting words from the king. Now, that's not crazy because the word of God, according to the, according to the Bible, it says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right. The scriptures are the words of God. So when I spend the morning receiving the words of the king, I'm like a subject. I'm putting myself in a humble position. And allowing the king to speak and teach and direct or whatever it is the Lord is saying through whatever it is that I'm reading. And that becomes a regular pattern of my life. And I do this with the intention of understanding him more and obeying him better. That's the key. When you spend time with God in the morning, there's lots of different ideas about what that is. At the very least, at the very least, when you spend time with God in the morning, the goal is to get to know him better. To get to know him better. What he thinks, what he loves, what he wants, what he's done, what he's saying is going to happen. Get to know him better. And then number two is how can I, how can I respond in obedience, in faith to what I'm learning about him? Those two things, if you're able to do those each day that you spend with the Lord, reading and hearing his word, that's a win. Now, if it goes beyond that, great, but at least that, and you can do that. As you spend time, that's one of the ways that you humble yourself before the Lord. So how's your quiet time going? If you don't know how to have a quiet time because you're a new Christian, no problem. We'd love to help you. 
We'd love to help you learn how to spend some time each day reading the Bible. It's a lot of fun. It's totally doable. It'll change your life. If you'd like to learn more about how to spend time with God each day, just put that on the digital connection card right now. Okay? Just click it on the screen and type that in the comments. I'd like to know more about how to read the Bible. We'd love to help you. Number three, I submit my goals, my plans, and my positions to him for approval before I hit the go button. Let me say that again. I submit my goals, my plans, and my positions on any topic, on any issue. I submit it to him for approval before I hit the go button. This is a really, really hard thing to do as a Christian because we're Americans. All right, we're Americans. All right, we write our own story. We are our own screenwriter. We're our own director, and we're the star of the movie. Right? We're, we're Frodo carrying the ring to Mordor. We're the star of the show. But that's not really true. I've said this before. Biblically, we're more like elf number 465. Right? We like to think that we're the star of the show, but Jesus is the star of the show. And God loves us. We're his kids. But the show ain't about me. Right? It's not. And it ain't about you. Now, there's much good and blessing that God wants to do. You're not unimportant to God. But Jesus is the star of the show. And that means that my life as a Christian is a life devoted, committed to Jesus. I want to use my life to build his kingdom, to get to know him more, to become more like him, to love his bride, the church, with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. I want my whole life to be one big worship song to the Lord. Now, that's obviously a big goal, and we fall short all the time. But that's the picture in Scripture. That's what Paul was aspiring to. That's what Peter was aspiring to. That's the life that Jesus lived towards his father. So if that's our relationship and we're choosing to humble ourselves before the Lord, should we go off and make plans without getting his approval? Right? Should we go off and have all these goals that we're setting that we never really consult the scriptures or wise counsel that we never actually honestly tell people they're kind of hidden inside? Right? That's what we normally do, which is we have a goal, we have a plan, we have a place we want to go. Maybe it's a couple years from now, but that's where we're going to be. And what we do is we never open that up to the Lord. We never submit it to him. We never talk about it openly, which is a part of opening up to the Lord. And we're doing that because we're not really going to humble ourselves that much. Not, not that much. He's not going to be Lord over my decisions and my priorities and over my goals. That's, I will continue to set those. And that's very typical. That's very common. I've experienced that. You may be experiencing that. But it's pride. It's not humility. So you got to watch out for that. What you want to do instead is you want to form questions. You want to identify the tensions in your life. You want to identify the problems that you're feeling and facing, the needs that you have. And then you want to go to the Lord and ask him to speak to you about those things in your daily time reading the Bible. So you're frustrated about your job. You don't like your boss. You're not getting paid enough. California's too expensive. Ah, and then you're just about to make a plan or a goal. You stop. You write down on a piece of paper, I don't like my job. I don't make enough money. California is expensive. What do I do? And then you have that as a question that you're posing to the king, to the Lord. 
And then you read the Bible each day. You do it for a month. You ask the Lord to speak to you through the things that you're reading, and he will. And oftentimes what he'll do is he'll start working on your priorities. He'll start revealing motives. He'll start showing you things internally that you didn't even realize were true about you. It's not even about the job anymore. He wants to work on you. And that's possible because you humbled yourself before the Lord. You humbled yourself. You didn't say, ah, pain, I decide this plan, I execute the plan. No, no. You said, ah, pain, here's my problem. Lord, what do you have to say about that? I'm going to slow down and not make any decisions. I'm going to allow you to speak to me through your word. I'm going to talk to my pastor. I'm going to bring it up to my small group leader. I'm going to get input because I'm interested in your will for me. You see the difference there? That's how you humble yourself before the Lord. So we've all heard attitudes of success. Maybe not all of us, but many of us have heard attitudes of success. This is what it looks like to choose humility. It's hard. But God will give grace to the humble. He'll help you do it. The fourth thing. <laughs> we got one more. The fourth thing is, and this is really tough, especially if you're young. If you're younger, if you're like a teenage Christian, a college-age Christian, a 20-something Christian, millennial, Gen Z. This one's hard. Here it is. If we're going to humble ourselves before the Lord, we have to adopt his values. We have to adopt his thinking. And we have to adopt his lifestyles in everything. His values, his thinking, and his lifestyles. Now, our culture today, especially the younger you get, high school, junior high school, college, 20-somethings, our culture, the American culture, is really, really aggressive at trying to set the values, thinking, and lifestyles of young people. And it is very anti-biblical. Very much so. So, for example, in our culture today, our culture is getting deeply, deeply corrupt when it comes to sexuality. Our culture is teaching nonsense and confusion when it comes to identity. And it is really hurting people's lives. I know this firsthand as I have ministered to people whose lives have been turned upside down by destructive teaching on sexuality and identity. I have seen it firsthand. And so when we look at the scriptures, it's pretty clear the Bible's pretty clear when it comes to sexuality and to identity. We also feel in our culture a lot of pressure to adopt the world standards of normal, right, and good. What's normal, what's right, and what's good. Those are big categories. Who gets to define normal, right, and good gets to control the culture. And so whether it's Twitter or TikTok or Hollywood or Silicon Valley or Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or whatever power center you pick, they are quickly redefining normal and redefining good, and redefining right in a way that is very, very wrong. And all you have to do is read the scriptures to see how divergent it is. So if you're a young person, especially if you're like me, you became a Christian as a young adult, right? So you have all this stuff that you have downloaded on you, all these values and all these lifestyles and all these thoughts and you know things you believe, it all baked into your soul. And you come into the Christian life and you start to look at the scriptures and it's like, whoa, that's just radical stuff. That's a very normal response. But what you don't want to do is say, that's not true. The Bible is outdated. The Bible can't be true. Because the reason why we would say that is we are choosing, we're choosing to use the culture to critique and redefine and edit the Bible rather than using the Bible 
to critique and redeem the culture. The Bible is the truth. The Bible gives us what is truly normative, right, and good. If we line our lives up with the scriptures, if we line our family up with the scriptures, if we line our church and our community and our state and our country and this planet in line with the scriptures, humans can flourish. But unfortunately, there are many Christians, young Christians, that like parts of the Bible, like Jesus saves me and he forgives my sin and he loves me. And that's true. But I don't like the whole morality stuff. And I'm not interested in hearing about biblical worldview things, what the Bible says about philosophy, ethics, politics, sociology, economics, psychology, history. I don't want to hear that stuff. That stuff is wrong. And the culture stuff that I've learned, that I've wrapped my heart around, that's right. When I make that statement, when I choose to do that, I'm actually saying I'm judging the Bible to be false. And I'm going to side with the culture. And biblically, that's got a name. That's called being a mocker. Because the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. When you fear the Lord and you begin to learn his words, you fear the king so much you listen to every single word the king is saying as if it's a perfect description of reality. You, you, you hang on every word of the king. You can't, you have to hear what God is saying. Shh, be quiet. I'm listening to God. When you fear God so much that you listen to what he says and take it seriously, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, one of them says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and discipline. Another one says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Anyway, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is how you begin to know the truth about reality. So, particularly for those who are younger, be careful. Be careful. You may be thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm humble before the Lord. But actually, there's this whole slice of your life that is just off limits to the Bible. And you're never going to let the scriptures redefine these things. I would just encourage you to be humble before God and let the Bible be your guide. Now, these things are hard things. These four things are not doomed tomorrow things. But this is the way you begin to choose an attitude of humility before the Lord. The second key way to apply humility is equally difficult. And here it is. You have to be humble before leaders. So I want to talk about Paul. Now, think about what you know about Paul. Okay? Maybe you don't know much about Paul. That's all right. I didn't know much about Paul when I first became a Christian. But here's who's Paul. Paul was a Jew. His name was Saul. He came from a wealthy Jewish family, and he was like a stud student. He was like the super, superstar student, top of his class, protege of the greatest teacher. You know, he was going to be the biggest, baddest Pharisee that you ever saw. He was going to be the leader in the Jewish nation. And he was so zealous, so hardcore for his kind of Judaism that he was having Christians killed because he thought that it was a heresy. He thought it was a, you know, a sect or something bad. He, he was hunting down Christians city to city to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they would be executed. That's how intense Paul was. Paul was an intense guy. I like intense guys. Sure, you can imagine. So Paul, he's on the road to Damascus, which is a city in Syria. And Jesus appears to him. And he blinds Paul. 
And he reveals himself to Paul and explains to Paul that, no, I actually am God in the flesh. I really am the God of this universe. I really did die for the sins of the world. It's really true. And I want you to go all over the Mediterranean Ocean for the rest of your life, starting little churches, telling them about me. And Paul did. He had a radical conversion. The Lord opened his mind. All that education he got from Judaism, the Lord used that. He leveraged that to make Paul a tremendous source of help to the early church. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He started churches all over the Mediterranean Sea. He was a rock star apostle. He was doing miracles. It's amazing. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. You can read about it in other books. Then something interesting happened. In the book of Galatians, which is a, a letter he wrote to a church in a region of Galatia. And Galatia is like Turkey. That's, that's where it's at. It's all the churches in that Turkey area that he had been associated with. He wrote him a letter. And in the letter, he was recounting to them something that had happened to him. He said, look, I was starting churches all over the place. And I was telling people about Jesus. That if you confess your sins, and if you forsake your old life of sin, and you receive the forgiveness that Christ offers then you can be saved, that you can have a new life in God, you can become a part of God's family. And I was telling this to Gentiles, people who were not Jewish. But then these Jews came. They were Christians, but they were Jewish Christians. And they were telling people that they had to become Jews before they could become Christians. They were telling Christians, like Greek Christians and Turkish Christians and Roman Christians who were not Jews, no Jewish background. They were telling these people, if you want to be a Christian, first you have to become a Jew, by being circumcised, by obeying the Torah, by following all these religious dietary rules, and then you can become a Christian. And Paul said, no, that's not true. That's a lie. That's not, that's not biblical. That's not right. So now Paul is being told by people who are not apostles, who haven't seen Jesus, who don't do miracles, who haven't started churches, that weren't super Pharisees, right? He's being told by these people that he's wrong and they're right. Now, most people would be like, look, I'm an apostle and I saw Jesus. I'm right. You're wrong. Get out of here. But that's not what Paul did. Instead, Paul says that he went all the way back to Jerusalem, to where it all got started. And he went to the leaders of the church, Peter, James, and John. And he submitted to them his gospel. He said, here's what I'm teaching. Here's what I'm preaching. Here's what I've been doing for 14 years. Is it right? Now, why would he ask them that? They're just men. And they're fishermen. And what do they know about the Torah? He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Yeah, they're apostles, but so is he. And he's written two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, obviously, he didn't know at the time. But couldn't he have kind of bowed his neck and been like, why do I have to ask these guys? I'm the super apostle. But he didn't do that. He put his gospel in front of them and asked them to judge, to critique, to confirm to him that he was on the right track. Here's what it says in Galatians. It says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set it before them. I set my gospel. I set my teaching. I set my work, all that I've been doing for 15 years. I put it all out in front of them, and I said, is it right? Talk about humility. Talk about a risk. And, if, and Paul is the one doing it. He's the least person you'd expect to take that humble position. Anyway, he says, I set it before them. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. See, Paul was not concerned about getting something for himself. He wanted to run the race. He wanted to honor the Lord. He wanted to do what was right. 
If that meant that he had to take everything he had done for the last 14 years and start over, well, that was what he was going to do if he was wrong because he cared about being right. And the way that he found out if he was right was he submitted himself to the elders, to the pastors of the church that the Lord had established. This is the pattern in the Bible. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus and his people. It's me and Jesus and the leaders that he has established in the churches. This is how the Christian life is lived, and this is how you choose humility. You choose it before the Lord, but you also choose it before leaders. And this can be very difficult for us as Americans. It can be difficult for me. We oftentimes don't want to do this. We don't want input from pastors, or we don't want to follow a pastor, or follow a leader, a small group leader, a team leader, or someone in the church. We, we don't agree, or we don't want to open up, and we, we just kind of pull back, or we resist. And this is typical. I've experienced this. I've done this. Maybe you've done this too. And there are common reasons. One of the reasons is we think we know more. We think we know more. Well, we don't trust that God speaks and directs through this person. Right? We don't believe that that's how God works. He doesn't work through the pastors. He works through the Bible directly to me. And then he sends me to the pastors or to the leaders or to somebody else in authority in the church. That's what we think the Lord does. <clears throat> Oftentimes, we don't want to hear something because it contradicts what we think or what we want. We have our hearts set on something, and we don't want to open it up to the elders, to the group leaders, to the team leaders, to the staff, to the pastors. We, we don't want to do that because, well, what it is is we really want what we want, and it would be a risk. Well, it was a risk for Paul, but he did it. And he did it because he was focused on what the Lord's will is and what was really right, because he was truly humble. He feared the Lord. He trusted the Lord. And he wanted to please the Lord. And that's what you do. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, that's not the kind of relationship that, you know, Christians are supposed to have with pastors and elders and, and group leaders and staff and team leaders. Like that's that's not kind of that's not really the relationship. That's not right. Right. That's not how it's supposed to be. Right. Well, let's look at the scriptures. Let's read Ephesians 4 and see how Paul describes the church functioning in the very beginning. It says this in Ephesians 4, So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service. Okay, I've read that before. So that the body of Christ may be built up. All right. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? How do I know if I've attained to the full measure of the fullness of Christ? How do I know? Well, the next verse says it. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. You see, the truth is, is that we as a church and the church more broadly are always under attack by people inside and outside, teaching heresy, teaching deceitful things, schemes. And it's easy for us to get blown around and be deceived. And one of the roles of pastors and staff and group leaders and team leaders and those in leadership positions in the church is to shepherd and oversee and to look out for and to build up and to protect and to teach and to give feedback to the flock, the people who are part of that church. And the Lord is the one who raises up these people. And he does it through proven faithfulness. He does it through the leaders that he's established. This is actually the relationship within the church. 
And that's why Paul says to his protege, Timothy, who was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Here's what he writes. Read this. Second Timothy two. And the Lord's servant, that's the pastor, should not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, not upset when people don't listen. Opponents must be gently instructed. When it says opponents, he's talking about Christians in the church who are opponents of the leader. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who is taking them captive to do his will. Christians can be taken captive by the enemy to do his will. He does that by getting us to believe lies, by setting our hearts on things that are not good, by adopting lifestyles and patterns that are destructive. And then when we come into a church and the scripture is preached and taught and standards are set that are contrary to the way that I feel and the way that I think and what I want, I bow my neck, I oppose. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is when you experience this, be patient, be gentle, and wait for the Lord to grant them repentance. Now, I have been this bowed, stiff-necked person. I have been this person who has decided that I know what's right. And the pastors know what's the pastors are wrong, or I know it's right, and the leader's wrong, or I'm right, and this person, I have done this. And I've both suffered for it, been ashamed for it, and God has spared me in some cases, as he's worked in me, because I'm a knucklehead and I have been. So I'm not judging but what I'm describing is a dynamic that goes on inside of a church where we we choose humility by humbling ourselves before leaders, valid biblical leaders. And hopefully you can see how all these things kind of work together. It's one thing to humble yourself before God and follow him, but it's another thing to humble yourself before people and follow them. That's, that's hard to do. But God gives us grace. He gives us grace. And that's how God has decided to lead us. God's the one who designed the system this way. God chooses to speak and teach and correct and direct through mediators. God chooses to work through men and through women. For example, he chose Abraham. And through Abraham, he would bless the whole world. He didn't go to every nation individually. He went from Abraham to the world. God chose Moses. The whole nation of Israel didn't go up on Mount Sinai and hear the Lord give the 613 commands. Moses was the one who heard. Moses was the one who wrote them down. Or it says the Lord wrote them down and gave them to Moses. And then Moses mediated. He gave them to the people. He worked through Moses. The prophets. The Lord didn't speak to all the people of Israel and Judah. He spoke to the prophets who then spoke to the people. He worked through human beings. The apostles. The Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven. And he sent the apostles to spread the gospel that I believe and that many of you believe. God chooses to lead, direct, correct, shepherd us, help us, transform us through the leaders that he's appointed. This is the biblical pattern. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. I received it. I didn't come up with it. I received it. That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, I, I received the good news. I received the message. I received the doctrine. I didn't make it up. And then Paul says to the men that he trained, they should pass on what they received. So you see, the idea here is that God is giving the people, his people, his churches. He's giving them the truth and he's providing them direction through the people that he's raising up as leaders. Not only through them, of course, not only through them. 
but it's a biblical pattern. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, For what I have heard, for what you have heard me from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful men who can teach it to others. It's being passed on through human beings. It's not just God speaking directly to every individual. It's God working through authority structures. This is a big deal. It's a challenging teaching, but it's what it means to humble ourselves, to choose this attitude of success. If it was easy, everybody would do it, and everybody would be super successful. But humility comes with a price. Being a mocker is in vogue. Being a mocker is popular in our culture today, whether you're 2 or 12 or 42. If we're not willing to listen to our leaders, if we're not willing to humble ourselves before the Lord and open our life up to him, and hear from him and learn his language and try to conform and transform to his word, what we're doing is we're getting into mockery. But the humble, the humble humble themselves before the Lord. The humble follow and learn from valid leaders. Jesus is our model. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. God humbled himself and became obedient to death. He became obedient. So obedient, he was obedient to death. He obeyed to death. He died on a cross. And then it says, And therefore God has raised him up and seated him up higher than any other name. So at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So Jesus is our model. If you have a hard time being humble, this is hard. If you have a hard time doing this, I have a hard time doing this. The Lord Jesus himself is humble, and he will give you the grace and power to do it. He will give it to you if you will choose his profile, if you'll choose and ask him for help to be humble in these ways. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. When I was um, working with my children, trying to teach them how to memorize a verse, I taught them this one, and we did it with a little song, and I added a little word at the end. The little word at the end is, it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible, but it helps you remember it. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom and a smiling face. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom and a smiling face. Now, it doesn't say smiling face, but if you read the Bible, Those that are blessed, those that are happy, are those that are wise. Let's not be proud. Let's be humble. So let's wrap up. How can you apply what you've learned today? Please take out your digital connection card and consider some of these next steps. First of all, you may want to change your approach to the Lord or to a leader. Maybe something was tapping on your heart. Maybe the Lord was really convicting you about something today. Write that down. Make the adjustment. Number two, open the books and ask for input. 
Ask for the Lord's input. Ask for a leader's input on some area of your life that the books have been closed on. Number three, once again, or maybe for the first time, decide to follow the Lord Jesus and receive the grace, the forgiveness, the power, the adoption, the life that God wants to give you if you will follow him by following his son. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray today that you would just use what was said that was true and right and good to work in us, to help us, to grow our faith. Anything that wasn't, I pray that you cause us to forget. I pray, Lord, that you would break up any idols, that you would show us any blind spots, that, God, you would cause us to um, really see accurately ourselves in measure to our faith. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to better trust you and be humble before you, that, God, you bring greater unity to our church, and that you continue to work in my life and in everyone's lives through the leaders that you've established. We thank you for your love and your help for your word and your teaching. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.